What is education for a free society? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Rachel Davison Humphreys. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, your temporary host, and today I'm speaking with Rachel Davison Humphreys. Rachel is the Director of Outreach at the Bill of Rights Institute. She leads the team that leads outreach initiatives, develops new programs and products, fosters close relationships with BRI's network of 50,000 teachers, and designs the marketing campaigns. Prior to joining BRI in 2016, Rachel worked for almost a decade as an educator, mentor, and trainer in middle, high school, and university environments, and continues to consult on a variety of educational projects. Rachel earned her BA in Liberal Arts from the Great Books Program at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, her teaching certificate in Adolescent Education from the Association Montessori Internationale, and her MA in Learning Design and Technology at Georgetown University. So Alex is on a bit of a break right now, and I will, I'm really excited to talk to Rachel about a topic that I really care about as well, and that's uh, education for a free society. Um, and so Rachel, our question today is, what is education for a free society? And to explore this, it might be best to start with defining what we mean by certain terms and concepts uh, at the beginning of things. But first of all, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for being here. This is really exciting. I'm a big fan of the podcast and the Institute for Liberal Studies for many years. So it's wonderful to talk about something that's so near and dear to the mission of that institution and getting to talk to you all. So thank you. Thanks for being with us. Uh, so to start things off, I just want to ask you, what do you mean by education in a free society or for a free society? We live in a relatively free society and most kids in our society go to school in the public school system and learn in a classroom by being quiet, listening to the teacher who presumably knows more than them. So why is that not the idea or that's working or why is it not working in your opinion if it is or isn't and why not or why is it? <laughs> yeah, I love this question. It's kind of what I've been working on for the past 15 years of my life. My entire adult career has kind of, you know, been around these ideas. Um, I'm deeply committed to living a free society and, and that in each individual has a right and a responsibility to govern themselves. Um, and one of the things I do want to caveat is that most of my research and most of my experiences in America, in the United States. So I'm not going to speak as much to the Canadian school system, but I'll be able to speak more to the U S school system. But generally when I talk about education in a free society, I'm talking about the formal and informal institutions that support knowledge and skills and specifically focusing on what supports the values, norms, and institutions that are generally considered part of a free society. So limited government, self-governance, uh, voluntary associations. What are, the, what are the educational mindsets that support those kinds of institutions? Um, so that's that's a that's a complicated question because there are a lot of factors right and you have a lot of fields that think about this you have the field of education which has its own set of um you know norms and institutions and and research and then you have political science that thinks about this and then you have education or, and then you have uh, economics that thinks about this and you have historians of education so there are a lot of people who who kind of have ideas and I, I live at kind of the intersection of that, thinking specifically about civic education a lot these the past five, six years or so. Um, but I think that that's a 
that, that's getting at our answer. It's, it's the the norms and institutions that support the norms and inst- that, that support the skills and how did I say it? The skills and um, knowledge necessary for supporting institutions of a free society. So what does schooling actually look like today? And what sorts of schooling are actually available to young people? And what are the differences between them, in your opinion? Yeah, well, I think there's, you know, there's a big pendulum that happens in education often, and it reflects cultural um, and often political goals within any culture. Uh, There is a civic mission to public schooling. That's its primary mission which is that it supports the republic, whatever that may be. So if you are going to have a public education system, which most, you know, most governments think is necessary to have a functioning society, then you're going to have values that are underpinning those, uh, the, 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 the philosophy under that educational system. Um, and so in right now, I think we have a pretty, because of the the way that it's structured, especially in the U.S., um, we have a pretty authoritarian kind of model. You have lots of administrative criteria that is pushed down into the local schooling system. And so, therefore, the local schools can't exactly be very responsive to the individual needs of the students or the needs of their particular community. Um, In the U.S., this was really a big thing when it came to uh, testing with no child left behind in the 90s. That's when you can kind of put a finger on the the radical shift. But the trend has been going on since the 1920s. You know, public education um, in the U.S. that's not at the state level, so at the federal level, it's only about 50 years old. So public education in the U.S., the the Department of Education was only founded in the 1970s. Before that, it was all very um, state-controlled. That's the state governments have the state governments in the U.S. have the um, have in their Bill of Rights and the state constitution uh, the disposition of education. It's not in the federal government's role uh, in our in our federal constitution. And so it wasn't until the 1970s that the Department of Education came to be, and then. Once funding started to be tied to outcome in the 1990s, you see a big shift in how schools and districts and states are responding with the criteria for the schools to receive the funding and therefore the education shifting to be more outcome driven and less personalized for the needs of the local communities. So I didn't know that it's it's so recent that it it expanded so much. Um, So the central planning is getting larger and larger basically getting yeah. to a higher and higher level and so the and, knowledge problem is getting even worse and that's i mean that's really it it's bad <laughs> it's often just bad epistemology bad theories of knowing right like so much i think about that a lot is that so many of our modern problems are bad theories of knowledge uh and like no not enough people reading hayek so i <laughs> you know and i think what what we have right now is because that that centralization and that authority is magnifying and becoming greater and greater and more and more important as funding structures shift and priorities shift. And COVID had a huge impact in this with all the COVID funding that went into schooling, which was, you know, clearly needed given the, the, the dramatic shift that had to happen during, uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, 
But what the effect of that is, is we now see a, a kind of cultural response that's saying, wait a second, we need to have a much more radically localized um, education for my child. And so you've seen uh, rates of homeschooling in the West double in the past year. It went from 2% to 4%, which still doubling, not huge, right? But but that's significant given the fact that, you know, um, prior to the pandemic, only about 2% of students were homeschooled. So other than the loss of sort of local knowledge, uh, what else is missing from traditional education in your opinion? So I think there's, you know, there's this way in which, so if you're not as familiar with kind of educational philosophy, there are kind of four major ways that people think about what education is, right? There, there's behaviorists who think about direct instruction and programmed instruction and kind of social learning theory. There are the cognitivists who really think about um, cognitive development and the conditions of the learning. There's a kind of humanism. And then there's something called constructivism. And that's a discovery process where it's problem-based learning and situated learning and activity um, and that students are constructing their own knowledge. And what you end up getting is different, different philosophies of education filtering through our educational institutions in different ways, but the measurement problem tends to, or, or the measurement need, the need to prove the instruction means that most institutions uh, tend towards behaviorism. They tend towards something that's very direct instruction because that's very measurable. Um, it kind of, there's this fantastic book by, by an author named Tayak called The One Best System, which is a history of education in the U.S., which looks at how the um, the scientific management movement, the Taylorism movement in the 1920s, influenced local um, local school boards and state school uh, school administration to think about measurement in and efficiency within their school districts. That consolidated a lot of school districts um, and also made it so that teachers were taught how to have very discrete lessons that built on one another instead of trying to design holistic learning activities that were really comprehensive and help the students construct their own knowledge. So there's, there's kind of a, and I apologize, there's a, there's a, it's, there's a lot of complexity to this, but I think thinking about how, how we think about learning and we think about measurement of learning has really influenced how we organize our institutions around learning. Okay, that's great. And so having said all of that, I'd love to hear your own journey in, in the field of education. Can you talk a little bit about how and why yeah. you got into education, why it matters so sure. much to you? Absolutely. Um, so I, you know, my own learning journey is pretty, uh, unfortunately, I think pretty standard for you know, a lot of smart kids who grew up in the 90s and were really balking against the kind of education that they were receiving, which was very, you know, kind of anodyne and uninspired in many ways. Uh, I really didn't like schooling. My fifth grade teacher was my favorite teacher. Um, and between fifth grade and 12th grade, I basically checked out and decided I was only going to do uh, I was only going to do projects that I thought were interesting which meant that at the time you had to test into advanced placement programs um, in the U or in, in my school in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. So I was able, like all my teachers recognized that I was um, 
I was, I was capable. And so they tested me into AP English in 11th grade. And I proceeded to get a D because I didn't do projects that I thought were dumb, but they're like, Rachel, you have to pass English every year in order to graduate. I was like, okay, fine. (laughs) So that was kind of how the conversations went throughout most of my schooling. Uh, Then I didn't go to college immediately. I didn't go to a four-year college immediately. I ended up getting an associates in social science at the American, in in a community college, which that's a whole other conversation. Um, But the American community college system is one of the most equity-driven organizations in the United States. It is amazing because anyone from anywhere can come to the U.S. and get a college degree. You start at a community college, you get your associates, and all of those credits transfer to your state university, which is a four-year accredited college. And it is unbelievably amazing. There's so many places in the world where that is not accessible. Um, and I am, I'm really proud to be a graduate of the community college system. I have a, uh, from Houston community college in, in Texas. Um, so I got that and I, uh, I just wanted to help people. That's always been kind of my drive. I want to, I, I, I have kind of a bleeding heart. And when, you know, the bleeding heart libertarian blog was up and running, I was like, oh, my people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I uh, got into emergency medicine. I was a, I did 911 uh, paramedic kind of work. I was an EMT intermediate. But that wasn't fulfilling my kind of intellectual interests. Um, and then I went to my brother read a book called Colleges That Change Lives, uh, which is a fantastic book about unique American educational institutions. And I learned about St. John's College, the great book school. And I like to say that I became a thinking person at St. John's. It's where I learned, you know, I, I went there thinking, ah, oh, if I want to do great things in my life, I'm going to need to know what greatness is. Let me go look at the greatest ideas that have ever been uh, thought about. And while I was there, I was uh, introduced to classical liberal ideas through my now husband, Andrew Humphreys, who uh, um, does a lot of this work with me. We co-author things regularly. Hopefully, uh, we now have a two-year-old, so we're not co- <laughs> we're not writing as much as we would like to be. Um, but uh, he introduced me to kind of thinking about what it means to help and reading David Beto and thinking about the history of institutions. I ended up writing my undergraduate thesis on Tocqueville and the role of associations against the tide of tyranny. The role of associations in America was my, was my undergraduate thesis. And so thinking about what is a free society, why is it important for human flourishing that we're free to act? And then I, I did work with Hurricane Katrina and was in, in New Orleans right afterwards doing cleanup um, and asking myself some really serious questions about the role of charity. <laughs> and then was, there's this quote by George Orwell where he says, if you hate violence and don't believe in government, the only remaining remedy is education. And so I was like, oh, in order for people to be free, they need to know how to they need to know how to be advocates for them for their own needs. And that requires us to have young people who learn how to do that. Uh, they need to be highly skilled, but also highly knowledgeable. Where can I go to support that? And I found Montessori education. So I'm a trained adolescent guide for Montessori schools. I got my, my Montessori certification and ended up working in a number of different schools that were radically student agency driven with students guiding a lot of their own 
learning in a very supported environment. So the environment has the materials that they construct their own knowledge with. And so you as the guide or the the classroom teacher support that with really high quality opportunities for them, Uh, including, in my case, experiential things. You know, I took 15 kids on a five-day volcano trip for our geology class, right? Or my students ran a a 56-animal farm or, you know, those kinds of very, you know, experiential responsibility-driven environments. And then after we lived in Guatemala for a little while, I came back and couldn't really find anything in Washington, D.C. that was radically student-driven, which has its own, uh, (laughs) which you can say what you will about, but there weren't a lot of those programs in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. And so I was introduced to the Bill of Rights Institute, which focuses on civic education, specifically from with classical classical liberal principles underlying it. And so that's where I've been the past five years getting to do that work on a national stage with the Bill of Rights Institute's network of 60,000 teachers. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I have so many questions uh, that just popped in my head from everything you just said. So I'm going to ask you those. But before yeah, go. before we ask, I ask those questions, I just want to share my own story of schooling uh, in Canada, because you say you're saying that it's a you're talking about American based. But in Canada, we have, I think, a very similar style of public schooling. Uh, so I went to uh, like public school, but it was actually Catholic school because we have that uh, in Canada, but it is still a public school, but just it's, it's, it's a bit complicated. Anyway. (laughs) Um, I also felt the same way. Like I, I got to a point where I was bored or I was, um, I just wanted to write. I wanted people to leave me alone. Let me write (laughs) and let me read the books that I wanted to. And once somebody assigned me a book, I was like, I don't want to read this book anymore because somebody told me to read it. So it wasn't really working for me either. And the way they taught math was very difficult for me to understand a lot of the time. And I talked a lot and my teachers kind of hated me for that (laughs) because I didn't really want to do the work. So uh, it's interesting that you brought that up too, because like we're having a very similar experience in different, two different countries. (laughs) I also had that. I think it speaks, yeah, I think it speaks to a kind of universality of bright young people wanting agency in their own learning. Exactly. And that's not what I thought I I wanted at the time. I just thought I was a bad student and didn't like school and that's bad. You know, like the the message I was getting from the education system was, you're a bad student. This is bad. This is affecting your grades. Where all I wanted was just to do the things that I I enjoyed doing and learn more about them, but I wasn't able to. So And be supported in that. And and I think that's where you see a lot of the kind of and this is where we'll go, but that's where you see a lot of the kind of experiments and educational environments moving towards is supporting students like who we were, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and, and just not, that wasn't as present in the culture, the idea that these students should be supported. It was much more present that no, the educational system is right. And therefore, because you don't fit in it, you are wrong. Yes. And there's a lot to fix in the university and graduate system, but it wasn't until university where I started being able to do things more specific to what I enjoyed. And that's when I started actually learning things. (laughs) So it's actually really interesting (laughs) that you bring that up um, because there's a natural tension between what are called the, um, what are called the liberal arts and the practical arts or the professional arts. 
And what you often, in, in, in educational kind of conversations, you hear that tension. Uh, why are they learning about philosophy when they should be learning skills, mm-hmm. right? Or yes. why, is, why did they have to know about all these different subjects when really they should be able to focus earlier only on their interests? And I think I, I recognize that tension. And I, I have a strongly held belief that at the early ages, it's not the variety or the, the kind of um, generalism that's the problem. It's the pedagogies that are being used to teach all the different subjects. So pedagogy in kind of uh, in, in education language is the, the learning styles that are used to convey the information. So what are the techniques and, um, and activities that are being used to help the student learn the content. So not the content itself, that's the curriculum, but the pedagogies are how it's implemented right? Uh, in the classroom. That's really interesting. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, I made a career out of, uh, you know, writing and talking a lot. So, <laughs> And that's it. Like, this is the other thing. Like, so many young people are just, you know, their time is so wasted because the environments are so unstimulating for yes. them. And if we could just let them be in more, like, give them more stimulation, they could get to those things much faster, right? Mm-hmm. I agree. We can, we can, and we can access that incredible energy and capacity much faster as a society. The idea that young people don't become productive until they're in their mid to late 20s is bananas. And I, you know, yeah, like I, so I specifically worked with middle school students. So I I worked with 12 to 15 year olds for almost 10 years and I love them. And that is a very weird thing to say in modern (laughs) culture because there are not very many people who really enjoy hanging out with these weird people. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I really did. And the reason I enjoyed hanging out with them is because of the weirdness. Like you don't know what their capacity is. They're these little balls of weird and they're 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 practicing all diff- all sorts of different versions of themselves sometimes within the same minute and they have no idea what's going on but they really want to and there's it's this really perfect moment of enthusiasm which they lose kind of towards the end of high school and capacity which they don't have until they get to middle school and so if you get them at that age of 12 to 15 and you give them meaningful work that has real outcomes in society that is philosophically interesting, they're going to come along with you. Totally. And because, <laughs> because they want to know what it's like to be an adult. They want to be able to experience real things in their lives. And they want to explore their own understandings of stuff. They want to know what they think. And so if you give them opportunities to do that, they really flourish. And I think so much of the heartache that comes in this period is this problem in our vision of what education in adolescence specifically is, that it is very academically focused and divorced from their lives. And so I think, you know, when we think about what experiences will help young people honor and value living for themselves, we have to ask ourselves, when do they get the chance to practice living for themselves? And if we're not doing that in their education, 
And we're not doing that in society at large where they don't have jobs outside the home anymore. They don't, um, they don't have experiences in clubs and institutions anymore. They're not part of like junior republics or junior, you know, anythings anymore. What kind of experience of society are they getting throughout all their educational environments, both formal and informal? And what does that mean for their vision of what a society is in the future? And that's kind of why I'm so passionate about this, because if we don't do that work now, they're all going to be little authoritarians because that's the only thing they've ever experienced (laughs) in their lives. Right. I think it's really important to share our stories of schooling and your stories about teaching adolescents because our listeners out there, like they might be having these issues with their own kids or or for younger listeners. It's not like, it's important to remind them, like it it might not be you. It might just be the system. (laughs) Well, and I think, you know, in the past, again, in the past, and actually, um, <laughs> Emily, uh, like the the Osters talk about this, or not the Osters, the um, the Ostroms talk yes. about this. Um, the Ostroms talk about the need for our educational institutions to support uh, democratic practices, right? And and so there's a whole movement. There is a whole movement that's about mm, I probably say seventy to eighty years old on democratic education specifically looking at this, you know, it starts with Dewey, but it doesn't really pick up until, you know, Gutman wrote the book, Democratic Education. Um, There's obviously the civic mission of schooling, but it wasn't until I probably say that probably the 80s until democratic education and kind of the specific norms and like learnings that have to happen in order to educate for democracy really started being researched in the field. So going back a little bit uh, further back into what you're saying about your own journey, um, I, I do still have those questions for you. And the first is I find it so interesting that you talked about advocacy and advocating for yourself and uh, how education can allow you to do that. I really want to hear more about that because advocacy is so important, especially when you're your own advocate and you don't really find that support elsewhere. So I'd love to hear that about about that a little bit more from you. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the things that again, drew me to adolescence was my own struggles in adolescence. I had a really hard time um, for a variety of reasons. You know, my my mom was really sick. My dad was really kind of permissive. I was taking care of my younger brother. There was a lot of challenges in the period. And uh, I also had the experience of being an outsider for a variety of reasons, right? I um, And so when I... I wasn't a very good advocate for myself for a long time because I didn't know what that meant. And we didn't have that language back in the nineties. Like it wasn't something we talked about or, you know, women support women. Like it wasn't all, it wasn't that endemic within our culture at the time. And what the, one of the problems is, is that you also don't have any experience talking to adults as, uh, as an individual in your relationships, you, you like when a teacher has 35 to 50 kids per class, 200 students per, per semester, there just isn't much time for you to have that kind of relationship with your adults, especially if those adults are very, uh, are, are very directive in the kind of like relationship that they have with you. So they're constantly giving you instructions and asking for feedback as opposed to sitting down and having conversations about what's important to you. Um, so you don't really explore your own interests or your own needs, and you don't have good language around advocating, recognizing your own needs, and then advocating for them. That the like ultimate effect of that is that you don't know how to go about finding out what you need. And you, it's called learned helplessness. 
that you learn that you should just sit and wait until someone else comes and helps because you've asked for help. Not, oh, I should go, you know, one of my classroom rules was ask three before me, you know, do three things to figure this out yourself. Ask a friend, look it up on the internet, uh, ask a parent, you know, do something for yourself before you come to me as, you know, the authority in the classroom with a question about how to do something, do, do something for yourself. Um, again, after I'd given the lesson, I don't want to clarify. It was after I would give a lesson and you had all the materials and the environment had been prepared for you. If you still had questions about what you were supposed to be doing, you had to ask three people before me, <laughs> or you had to do three things before you came to me to ask. Um, and again, that's about learned helplessness. If you zoned out, cool, you can zone out. I have two other ways that you can figure that out. <laughs> it's, it's up on the wall. It's in the link that I sent you. Or like, you know what I'm saying? There were three, there, there were redundancies built in specifically because people are distractible and young people don't always, you know, you can't expect 25 kids to all pay attention at the same time. So you have to have redundancies at any rate. Um, when I was in New Orleans, I had the experience of talking with a lot of the, so we went to New Orleans um, after, during the spring break where all the like college students converged on, on New Orleans to do support. So that would have been April after the February uh, hurricane. And I worked at a self-organized tent city called the Made with Love Cafe. Um, and I brought 20 students from my college there and we volunteered and this self-governing city of tents that had like a barbershop and childcare. And it was all self-organized in a meeting that happened every uh, three times a week. It's fabulous kind of anarchist education. Uh, and while there, though, it was very clear that there were certain individuals who had initiative to, to go and get the things they needed and other who had the skills to be able to advocate for the things they needed. And there were other individuals who didn't have skills to be able to advocate for the things they needed. And that was clarifying to me as I later entered the education, the field of education, that how do we, what do we have to do? What experiences do you have to have to know how to advocate for your needs, to know how to find out what you need to know? to be able to get what it is that you need to fulfill your goals is an interesting question. And one that I, I think that there are pockets of concern about, and then other pockets of education focus on like discrete knowledge as opposed to the skills, or they focus on academic skills as opposed to skills of inquiry. Um, and so those skills of inquiry are the thing that are, you know, essential in my understanding of what, what it means to be an educated person and therefore uh, capable of citizenship. I think there are, you know, but there are other pockets of education that don't think about these questions in this way. And so when I talk about being an advocate for yourself, that's where I'm coming from. That's great. And it's actually a really good segue into my next question was, which was going to be, I, I just want to know a little bit more about the work that you do on education. You started talking about it a little bit, but uh, if you could expand on that and promoting yeah. schooling in a free society. Yeah, I, well, and so, you know, I want to be doing more. So I'm so grateful to be talking to you. I, I've been kind of ruminating on this and thinking about this and there's like a little collection of us working on this um, I would say that the 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 man who 
introduced me to these ideas through my husband um, is Michael Strong. If you haven't heard of Michael Strong or his work, he has a new kind of online school called the Socratic Experience, which is fantastic. Uh, But he's been an educational entrepreneur for a long, long time, thinking about the intersection of different pedagogies with the kind of internal virtues that are necessary for self-governance. Uh, there's a man down in Guatemala named Albert Lone who's doing similar work. My husband is looking at kind of um, political economy as relates to education, and he also is a Montessori-trained educator, so he thinks a lot about this stuff too. There's Marcia Enright out in Chicago who's doing this sort of work with her school Reliance College. There kind of, there's a collection of us that are working on this. Um, but I would say that that the the research that I'm wanting to do is how do different pedagogies, different ways of teaching influence political dispositions? And so that's the intersection that I'm looking at. Um, Political dispositions is a term from political science. Looking at like, what are the, what are the dispositions that lend themselves to different uh, understandings of the role of government or, or desires in government? Uh, and you, you, you know, there are dispositions towards freedom, and there are dispositions towards authoritarianism, and there are dispositions in a lot of different directions. But that, so that's kind of the research that I'm most interested in right now. Uh, my history of of kind of research and writing is limited, but I've done a little bit. Uh, I have a website called Learning Flourishing, uh, where I've started to to put a lot of this stuff. I think. My master's, I got my master's in learning design and technology to think about kind of what the future of education for for a free society could look like or the future of the pedagogy of what I call self-governance could look like. And so that's kind of where where I'm I'm headed. My journey has been really through education and classical liberal ideas parallel. And when I came to the Bill of Rights Institute, I was finally able to kind of merge those two interests and work at an organization, a national organization that has those those founding principles, those those virtues of a self-governance at its core. So one project that you've worked on in the past that I'm really interested in, it's the Heroes and Villains page on the Bill of Rights Institute <laughs> website. I know that you were uh, involved in that. And I found it really yeah. interesting that you're sort of teaching students about virtues, not by basically outlining, here's a list of things that are virtuous. They are virtuous because society says so. (laughs) There will be a test on this next week. (laughs) That's usually how they get it. So rather you're presenting it by showing like what responsibility looks like or something like that. Like, okay, responsibility is a virtue. Great. But like, what does it look like? How can you relate to it in your own life? Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit more? Um, and also about the importance of education of civics and history. Uh, you, you seem to focus yeah. on that as well. So, and that's a part of it. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. My, my kind of teaching background, because I'm a generalist, I went to St. John's, the great books kind of background and turned out that that degree got me highly qualified in every subject area in Arizona. When I taught in Arizona, awesome. I, I've, <laughs> I've kind of, <laughs> I've, um, I've run the gamut of teaching. I taught, I taught, philosophy. I taught, you know, history. I've taught um, science and math. I was a science and math teacher for three years. I've taught medieval history. I've So I've taught lots of different things. The focus on history and civics really becomes the foundational context in which everything else kind of builds off of. Um, because if you don't, all the discrete knowledge in the world 
can, you can explore all of this, all of this. But if you don't have a firm civics and history understanding, then you're not going to be able to, ad, again, advocate for being a free person. And so that becomes very primary uh, for my interests and, and for the things that I, that I care about. Heroes and Villains, just to clarify, I wasn't part of the writing team. I came to the Bill of Rights Institute right after that was um, published, but I have been part of the presentation team. So through my work at the Bill of Rights Institute, I've probably given over 200, uh, 200 professional development seminars at this point, uh, or lectures or different things that I do with educators across the country. Heroes and Villains is really cool. What, what Heroes and Villains did is it said, okay, character is important. Character education is important. Talking about what virtue is in and of itself is important. How do you do that in a secular context? So often character and virtue education will happen in religious schools because it's clear that the mission of those schools has that at, a, at its root. Public, public education actually has a tension with doing character and virtue education in the U.S., because of the, the kind of idea, a, a kind of false understanding or misrepresentation of what this separation of church and state means in schooling. You know, there are actively conversations in the Supreme Court happening around what it means. And so there, you know, there was just a Supreme Court case that clarified a decision from decades ago in the U.S. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been an ongoing conversation for a long time. But what BRI did, what the Bill of Rights Institute did, is we took Aristotelian principles as as the foundation for where virtues come from and kind of divorced it or, or just like separated it. There's clear lines in the curriculum, but we separated it from the kind of Christian-centric values discussion uh, and took those and said, okay, there are certain qualities of a person that are necessary in order to value being self-governed in order to value being a part of a society that is self-governed who are individuals that students can use to explore these uh, virtues we looked at frederick Douglass. we looked at john brown we looked at george washington we looked at che guevara we looked at um irma gracie who was a who was a nazi nurse we looked at ruby uh um what's her name What's Ruby's last name? Hold on. Sorry. No problem. We looked at Irma Gracie, who was a Nazi sympathizer. We looked at Martin Luther King. You know, we've looked at lots of um, public figures and asked, what's a virtue that they embody? And how can we help students explore how they embody that virtue necessary for self-governance through the lens of these different characters. My favorite one is John Brown. If you're not familiar with John Brown in American history, he's a divisive figure um, because he led the raid on Harper's Ferry where a number of soldiers were killed. Uh, but it was a, it was a slave, it was an enslaved person uprising. And so you can see that it is, that, that's a divisive character um, he is a fascinating person. He felt it was he, it was his divine duty to do this. Um, Frederick Douglass intersects with his story because Frederick Douglass was invited to the raid on Harper's Ferry and ended up deciding not to do it, uh, which he writes about. You can as we'll talk about later because we both love Frederick Douglass so much. Um, but you know, John Brown is this all, a really excellent character who doesn't have a clear, you know, hero or villain status. He is at the intersection when it and which helps students explore their own values and their own their own 
their own, which helps students explore in their own values and their own interests in what what they care about. Uh, so, so Heroes and Villains is this great resource. We actually did this again in our most recent, uh, when we, we just published two more resources. One is called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. It's a landmark textbook that has over 400 different components. It's really cool. But what we did there is we did point-counterpoint essays. And we asked individual scholars. We worked with over 96 different scholars on this resource. And each scholar said, this is my position on this issue. And the, the alternative scholar said, this is my position on this issue. And we asked students to clarify their own position. Uh, and then in our most recent resource, which is called uh, Plainest Demands of Justice, Documents for Dialogue in the African-American Experience, we have over 90 different primary sources from Black authors. And we asked students to encounter those authors' own words. Uh, we scaffolded them. That's a nice, that's, scaffolding is, a, is education speak for we made the reading more easy by adding elements to the learning, you know, page so that it's easier for students to kind of read through harder language or harder concepts. But we have scaffolding in all of those. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that draws me to the Bill of Rights Institute, given my background and, and why I value the work they do so much, is that they really are educating for self-governance in ways that I don't know of any other American educational institution focusing on. That's great. And unfortunately, it's time for us to take a break. But when we get back, we will talk a little bit more about Frederick Douglass. Like The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, John Robson, and Chris Rondolo. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back to The Curious Task. I'm talking with Rachel Davis and Humphreys today. Uh, we're talking about uh, what is education for a free society. And as I promised before the break, we're going to talk a bit about Frederick Douglass. Now, the first thing you think about when you think about Frederick Douglass isn't necessarily education and his thoughts on an education. And I, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about why we should be thinking about him as somebody who had an influence on what your thoughts are on education um, and just education in general. Please uh, let us know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Frederick Douglass is probably, if you aren't particularly familiar with his writings, I would say he is the greatest political rhetorician in American history. He is a profoundly clear writer who we have the honor of being able to follow his evolving thoughts throughout his life. One of the things that I love about Frederick Douglass is because he wrote for 40 years, we have documents where he says, I've evolved my thinking on this issue. This is why. Here's why I changed my mind about this fundamental claim that I had made 15 years ago. Um, the best example of that is is his understanding of whether or not the American Constitution was a slaveholding document or not, and his thinking on that. Frederick Douglass, to me, is 
absolutely one of the best inspirations when it comes to the power and liber the liberative power of education like education for liberation of the human spirit soul person uh and he is a model for what it means to be liberated through education both philosophically but also physically uh one of my favorite parts of and you can speak to this sabine but one of my favorite parts of Douglas's uh, biographies, he wrote three of them. He lived long enough that he wrote three autobiographies. Uh, <laughs> but what he talks about is the fact that um, one of the slaveholders, uh, when he moved uh, in Maryland to near Baltimore, I think, correct me if I'm wrong on any of these details, I mean, when he moved to Baltimore, one of the one of the wives of one of his, one of the slave, uh, one of his enslavers was teaching him to read the Bible. And he, uh, his, the, the, the slave owner learned that she was doing this and he overheard them having a conversation about the fact that if a slave, an enslaved person learns to read, they will be unfit for slavery. And in that moment, Douglas says, I knew that was what I needed to be able to do because I needed to be free. And if that was the way to do that, then that's what I needed. And so he's this, there's this, he was only probably, I think he was like 10 years old or seven, 10, somewhere in, somewhere in upper elementary when this happened. I don't exactly remember what age this was. Um, but he, and he took that and he would trade chores with, uh, with, um, you know, local white boys to teach him words. And, you know, then became one of the greatest speech makers in American history. By learning what it meant, learn by self-teaching, by teaching himself, by being an autodidact. So autodidactism is the the like the ability to teach yourself. Um, he taught himself everything, became a voracious reader of the classics, became as well versed in the ideas that the the oppressive population was using to justify oppression. Became better versed in those ideas than they were, and was able to turn them against. The, their own ideas and that was powerful um if you haven't ever read what to the slave is the fourth of july it is one of the greatest pieces of writing in english um i i i will fight someone on that <laughs> um but i i i have more things to say but i think that starts to cover it that's great and um there's there's one quote that i i heard you repeat in um in one of the uh, pieces i was reading or listening to, I should say, uh, by you. And that quote from Frederick Douglass is, once you learn to read, you will be forever free. And um, that obviously came from that moment when of realization that you just talked about. Uh, and it also goes back to something you were saying earlier about advocacy. So uh, that education that Douglass took on made him a better advocate for his, uh, for his people and in his country. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about that before we move on? Only that if my daughter had been a boy, she very well would have been named Fredericks because <laughs> Frederick Douglass, Frederick Bastia, and Frederick Hayek. Oh, wow. <laughs> what a great trio. That's a great name. There you go. <laughs> she's, a, she's a girl, so it didn't yeah. happen. And I don't know if it will, but if you're really committed to these ideas, Frederick is a good name. That is a good name. Pick the, one of the three. And tell them one of those three they're spellings. just named after all three and, of them. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> okay. exactly. Uh, so, 
we're taking we're talking a little bit about um, the history um, of education, a thought of a thought surrounding education, um, and we have been talking mostly about the, this movement that you're talking about about um, finding a way to educate uh, in a free society in a better way. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the history of this movement and those you think have been instrumental in creating and building it as we know it today. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, so it's interesting that the history of this movement is really interesting because similar to other kind of liberation ideas, there are both there, there are things that are very far to the right that inspired, and there are things that are very far to the left that inspired. Um, and so I think it's an interesting question of what is the kind of classical liberal inspiration and what's the history of the classical liberal movement towards a free society. I would say that's probably rooted really in a, in a, in a thinker called Jonathan Holt from the 1960s. And the 1960s was this time of, you know, incredible ter- overturning of preconceived ideas of education in America, right? There was, you know, preconceived ideas of society were being overturned. And Jonathan Holt really uh, was the author that spoke to the need for radically liberal education for young people. Um, You have a bunch of movements that came out of that. Uh, You have the Waldorf, well, you have a bunch of movements that came out of that, which are the democratic schools. But you have the idea of self-governing, insti- like giving young, very young people opportunities for to be self-governed are much, much older than that. So honestly, you can find it in Plutarch. There's a fantastic essay in Plutarch called De Auditu, which is on listening to lectures, where he talks about the need for lectures, for, for lecturers to be careful because lectures, because listen, students listening to lectures can look like they're really engaged. They have the flush of excitement, but it's not touching the like spidery cobwebs of their soul. And he uses this like very florid language in Plutarch talking about being careful about how you're educating people to not be fooled by the, the like what they're presenting you. And to really know whether or not the education is touching their soul. He goes on to say, I love this essay. I use it a lot in my teacher education and teacher preparation because it's it's just fascinating to see that, you know, educators 2,000 years ago had the same issues that educators today do. So I highly recommend. It's very long, but there are paragraphs that are really, really good for this. It's, it's about 10 pages of Plutarch, which is a lot of Plutarch. Um, but uh, he has this this great description. If you've ever heard, the, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lit. That's where this comes from. It comes from this essay. And the way that he goes on to describe that is, you know, imagine that you have a, stu- you have a, a, a fire that a student built. And there's another student who comes over and warms themselves by the fire. And they look like they built the fire. They have like the reflection in their eyes and they have the same flush cheeks. But one of them built the fire and the other is just basking in the glow of it. And the question of education is which person is educated, right? What do you want out of the education? And, you know, Plutarch is exploring this back in, you know, in ancient times. And we're still asking those same questions. And I think that, you know, when we think about what the history of the American kind of movement is, it's situated in other social movements. I would say, you know, there was a big movement at the turn of the last century. So now (laughs) I keep having to remind myself that it's not like like, that it's the, the, 
the 2020s, right? So when we say the turn of the century, we're, I'm talking about the 19th century. Um, at the turn of the century, there were a lot of concerns about, <laughs> about, about young people um, or children being educated. You know, uh, the, the big public education systems in the U.S. are designed around the 1860s and Massachusetts and, and Illinois have, have big movements around uh, public education uh, universal public education doesn't come around in the U.S. until about the 1860s, 1870s, it, and then it doesn't it doesn't spread to be universal across the U.S. for about 50 years. Um, so, but during that time, there are a lot of people who are saying, you know, a a a teacher directed environment where the teacher is deciding how the students are learning, just like a foreman is deciding how workers are working is not the model. There are dissenters in that period. Um, those dissenters are Rudolf Steiner, who ended up developing the Waldorf School, and Maria Montessori, who ended up uh, developing the Montessori uh, School model, which I'm, I'm very familiar with, and I think is the model of education that most closely aligns with classical liberal values. Uh, there are a bunch of people who have written about this, um, but I, and I can explore that. Anybody wants to reach out to me, they're more than welcome to. Um, but there are, you know, there are, there's this kind of movement here that is dissenting from the, the model, the kind of what people will often call the, called the Prussian model. Uh, not quite the Prussian model. It was just the model of mass education, right? You needed a way to educate all of the children of all of the workers that were now in cities and you need to have systems that did that. And so the way that you do that is you have to organize them into trackable groups. It was a, it was a, a function of bureaucracy more than a function of the needs of students. And you see that today too, right? What is the role? How much of our institutions of education are designed to meet the needs of the child versus how much are designed to meet the needs of the working parent? Those are those are questions that we should ask ourselves now that the now that education in the U.S. is you know 150 years old. What are the let's take an inventory and ask ourselves those important questions. So that's one kind of nexus of of innovation would be responses to a kind of industrial model, mass schooling model. The other kind of big movement would would probably happen in the 60s around free schooling which is Jonathan Holt and Martin Greenberg and the Sudbury Valley model and all of those kind of radically student driven models that then had a resurgence in the 90s in response to uh, in response to No Child Left Behind, and then another kind of bump in the 2000s in response to the COVID pandemic. So I would say that, I, you know, just thinking about kind of historically, that would be the way that I described the major educational reform movements from a classical liberal perspective. Who's thinking about the, the needs of the student as an individual. Um, okay, so now that we've understood better the history of the movement, um, your definitions, and, and everything else we've talked about, um, I'd love to go into one part of this kind of education um, that 
we at the ILS use. It's called Socratic learning or Socratic seminars, Socratic practice, uh, however you want to, to call it. So uh, we actually put on Socratic seminars for students, and I find them to be very successful. It's a really good way to uh, – I think it's a very good way to understand, um, you know, things that you're reading uh, and learn about them. Uh, I'd love to hear your opinion on uh, Socratic learning and uh, how you if how and if you practice it and um, you know the method that method of teaching in general. So one kind of fun fact is the first Socratic learning seminar that I led was for the ILS. Awesome. Janet, <laughs> Janet and Matt invited me down to work with some teachers um, in or up to work with some teachers in Canada over a year. We did a series of, of trainings um, to, to help those educators practice Socratic discussions in their classroom. Uh, so I'm grateful to ILS for kind of jumpstarting my career in this space. Gosh, it would probably be seven, eight years ago now, maybe more. Um, but I'm so so that's fun. So that's a nice little nice little touch point with with the wonderful work ILS has been doing for so long. Uh, so I was introduced to Socratic discussions uh, in my undergraduate. I St. John's College, which is where I went to school, is a great book school, which means it has a, an all required course load. There are no electives except for four weeks once a year, uh, only in your sophomore, only in your junior and senior year at, uh, in college. And everyone takes the same courses. So a sophomore has read everything a freshman has and a senior has read everything everybody else has. Um, they also don't have any textbooks. They only use primary sources and they don't have any lectures except for an optional Friday night lecture. All classrooms are Socratic discussions, meaning... In the St. John's context, there is a text and there is a, uh, a text that everyone has read in advance of, the, of, of that day's class. And the tutor in the class has a question or a series of questions that they want the students to jump off from. Um, and so after doing that for four years, for every of your four required classes every semester, you, you come out with this capacity for thinking and learning about ideas that you didn't have going in um, and I would say is uncommon in a lot of educational environments and I'm very grateful to St. John's and the work that it does across its two campuses and that started the journey. Um, I flourished in that environment as you and I were mentioning being a, a young woman who really liked talking with other people was not something that was valued in my other educational environments. And at St. John's, it was, it was, and not only was it valued, but it was refined. And our ability to think clearly about our own ideas was refined through that education. And there was a kind of, uh, and there was a kind of, power that came from knowing you could approach any subject because you had this kind of deep experience with all subjects. So after St. John's, um, I again entered the education field and brought that pedagogy with me. I mentioned Michael Strong. Michael Strong literally wrote the book. It's called The Habit of Thought, which guided a lot of my early understanding and, uh, and, and use of Socratic discussions. What Michael does is different than a lot of uh, ways that Socratic discussions are implemented, though, in classrooms. So often, 
what what Michael Strong's book advocates is that the the Socratic discussion is the entire engine of learning, and it ends up creating a micro community within the classroom through the evolved feedback that the discussion ends up having. So basically, the way that a Socratic education would function is all classes or almost all classes are discussion-based and the students are constantly using metacognitive practices, meaning using, they're constantly thinking about what's happening in the class to refine and improve. So they develop their own sets of classroom rules, conversations go badly and the students analyze why they go badly until the conversations go well. And then when the conversations are going well, they continue to refine how the conversations are going. And this is how all of the learning is happening. And by doing so, you have incredibly agency-driven education because not only are the students deciding what it is they're focusing on in the texts, they're also deciding they're also working collaboratively to build the social institutions within the classroom, um, within the environment, whatever that environment is. And so all learning can happen this way. You can have deep knowledge of lots of different subject areas by reading the primary sources and discussing them in a structured way. That's not what Socratic discussions often are. Um, and that's fine because you can get a lot of, you can get a lot of the effects the, the kind of salutary effects, the good things that come out of Socratic discussion, even if, even if the discussion is episodic, even if it's just a couple of conversations a year, the students are going to really benefit from the freedom and agency that they experience in those conversations. So the, those conversations are usually, again, around a text. There's some work that you've read, uh, but there may be more structured questions uh, the questions may, there may be more of them, so they're not as uh, developed by the students themselves. Um, and sometimes the kind of institutional work that's able to happen if you're having lots of these conversations needs to be truncated. And instead, there need to be more structures, more structures in place. So the one that's commonly used comes out of Liberty Fund in our circles, and that's the Q method which means that people get on, they, they want to make a comment or they want to introduce a new topic. And so they get on a queue on a list that the conversation leader is, is scoring uh, and, and the conversation leader is managing who's speaking. In Socratic education, there isn't that list because you have the luxury of having the students developing the practices that go alongside the conversation. Often, if you only have students for two or three days or even a week, you don't have as much time or sometimes just not inclination to have them do that work. You have other things you want to focus on. Um, so there are a lot of different methods for Socratic education. And I think that one of the things, or Socratic discussion, one of the things that Michael talks about and a lot of authors talk about when they talk about, there's a book called Socratic Circles, which is really fantastic. There's one on the art of Socratic discussion. There, there, there are about five or six different books that are really excellent if you want to get into this, um, some more, more modern than others. But there are lots of, there are as many different ways to do a Socratic discussion as there are Socratic discussion leaders. The kind of essential elements are that all of the students are focused on a text where no one in the room is an expert about the text and they're discovering it themselves. And 
the students drive the, the questions being asked around the text. They, they have agency in what the, where the conversation goes, even if they didn't kind of have agency about where it started. That's really interesting. And I think this kind of concept is, is pretty foreign to a lot of people. The fact that you're like, what does the seminar leader actually do if they're not directing the conversation and, the, and lecturing? And, and how can students learn when they don't know anything about the topic? Like, these are the natural questions you'd have hearing something like Socratic learning. And this, there's this natural inclination to think that students don't want to be in the classroom. Like, they don't want to be there. Like, you have to force them to be there. And you have to lecture at them. And hopefully they'll pick something up. And, um, you know, so, so Socratic yeah. seems so out there. It's, it's so <laughs> foreign. It's so foreign because it's, it's so contrary to our own, often, what, what our learning experiences were. And, you know... I think that the best, there are really amazing lecturers out there and they are, it is powerful to be exposed to those ideas. Definitely. But the vast majority of educators are not excellent lecturers. <laughs> and that's not, you know, that's going to be maybe 10% of the population. So how can we, how can we create opportunities for other learning experiences for young people? And I think one of the things that a Socratic discussion can't be is specific content expectations. Um, if you want a student to know something about a text, then you have to tell them that about the text. But if you want them to explore their own interests in a text, then you can have a Socratic discussion. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there's a, there's a complexity there where, again, what is the goal of your educational environment or your educational experience with these students? And how do you craft, so this is where the, what's called learning design comes in, how do you craft the experience of the environment and the activities to help meet those goals? And so essentially what you're advocating for here is student-centered versus curriculum-centered learning. So putting the student in the middle of it rather than just like forcing the curriculum no matter what. Particular content, right? And, and you know, maybe it is the case that in an environment where you have specific knowledge that the student needs to have, um, like, I don't know, law classes or mm -hmm. mechanical classes. Maybe it doesn't make as much sense to explore, uh, you know, then the, the Krebs cycle Socratically, right? <laughs> but if it's something that has to do with the nature of the student or the nature of the, of the, of the subject itself, something philosophically driven, the other thing just to know is that text selection is really important. Not all texts lend themselves to Socratic discussion. So you may have the best students and the best place, and they're all really excited to be there. And then the text just doesn't have anything that's controversial. It doesn't have <laughs> anything that's, or it, or it doesn't have anything that the students can care about in it. Yeah, definitely. That is a terrible and situation. So, yeah. <laughs> and so you're like, oh, shoot, I chose the wrong text, right? Like, I... Ah, uh, no. Oh, no. What did I do? And sometimes that happens. And that just that comes from experience. And that also comes from there's, you know, there's a comfort with not being in control that is necessary for Socratic learning to take place. Because here's here's the kind of secret goal in any Socratic environment. And that is for it, for there to be no single authority in the classroom. So one of the things we haven't talked about yet, and I can't believe we haven't talked about it yet, is the, we, we've talked kind of around it, but the idea that for a young person to, to be self-driven, 
they have to know that they are in control of their own learning. If there is another person in the room in control of their learning, then it is necessarily the case that the young person is not. So when you have an adult in the room, by nature of the way that humans are, the young people, the young people will look to that adult as the authority. Yes. And they won't ask the questions because, you know, it's natural to say, look, there's a person who knows more. They went to, they got a PhD. I'm going to listen to what they say. I'm not going to ask the questions for myself. That's, that's ridiculous. I'm a 12 year old. (laughs) But what we want them to do is say, no, I can know these things through my own effort and work because I have the text and I have my other students. And I don't need to turn to the authority in the room to say, what does this mean? How do I do this? The, authority, the, the, the adult is there as a check, as a guide, as bumpers on a lane. There are a lot of different analogies that you can use, mm-hmm. but they are not, the, the ultimate goal is that the, the young people no longer see the adult as the authority. And instead they see themselves sharing responsibility for the conversation and for their own learning. And before we go to our final wrap up, I I wanted to talk to you a little bit about based on what you just said, how has technology really affected this uh, way of teaching and this way of learning, uh, especially through through the pandemic, but also before that we were looking at things like Turnitin and Blackboard and all of that. So it's technology has been an intrinsic part of this, but like what has been good Mm -hmm. about that and what are the limitations do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of false belief in the power of, of, of technology to do learning for students. Technology has limits and it has opportunities. The opportunities are for that content transfer. If there's something specific for someone to know, they have the best lecturers in the world who can teach it to them at their fingertips. You don't have to go to London or Paris or or Brussels anymore to get the best, or Vienna, right? You don't have to go to Vienna to get the best lecturers in economics. I can find them on the internet. I can do them from Africa and from Colombia and from Saskatchewan. I, so like the power of the content knowledge transfer is amazing and huge and incredible. The thing is, that's not Learning is a social activity. There's so much that you can do by putting information into your head or like having facts or understandings about discrete things. But what you can't do is learn how to be a good person. <laughs> there's, this really, there's this really interesting thought experiment in economics, like the, the, um, the, the Caruso, like the Caruso thought experiment, like brought like, Crusoe on the island. It's the same thing with learning. Like, what is what is education for self-governance when you're the only person on an island? Right. What is education when you're the only person on the island? When you have students sitting in front of computers doing all their work, they become the only person on the island. And that's not learning. That's not being a member, that's not being a constructive member of society. That's not learning all the skills and you know, the creativity that comes from interacting with others and engaging with others, that's not, um, that's not helping you become, that doesn't give you the skills to be able to collaborate, to, 
to coordinate self-governance. That requires interactions that help you build something together where you can advocate for your own needs in when those needs come into conflict with others, adjudicate that conflict. And so Socratic discussion gives students the opportunity to have their ideas come into conflict and adjudicate that conflict peaceably and practice doing that so that when they are adults, they have experience doing that. And we can live in a society that is peaceful as opposed as opposed to driven by authoritarian, you know, dictatorship. So basically, it takes a whole classroom to teach a child. It isn't just a one person. It does. Yeah, (laughs) because the children are teaching each other so much more than the adults in the classroom is teaching. Right. When it comes to the social environment. And when we think about education only being for content for specific discrete knowledge, I think we miss the entire purpose of education, which is to support young people into being self-governed in society. Well, Rachel, I have to, I'm very sad to tell you that we have come to the conclusion (laughs) of our conversation because I'm really enjoying this. And so many things have come up that are so interesting. Uh, It's been a great session with you. Thank you so much for being here with us. And we've talked about a lot and let's try and bring the conversation full circle and and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on uh, education in a free society? I think the question like, or the takeaway is that we need to apply all the questions that we ask of other institutions to the institutions around education. Who is it serving? What are the factors that are influencing the decision-making? And what are the goals? Often, I think that the children themselves are not a factor in the decision-making. It's the ease of the bureaucrat, bureaucracies. I don't think the children themselves are the central factor in the decision-making. It's the needs of the bureaucracy, the needs of the parent, or the needs of the adult in the classroom to share or have control over the environment. When we ask ourselves, what does a young person actually need to flourish in a free society? If we ask ourselves, what does a young person need to flourish in a free society? and we built our educational environments around the answers to that question, I think we'd be living in a very different educational environment. Rachel Davison-Humphreys, thank you so much for being on The Curious Task with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I had so much fun. If anyone wants to reach out to me, you can go to my website, uh, learningflourishing.com, and you can reach out to me through there. I would love to hear from you. Thank you very much. Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Sikang. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Vopenford. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Elchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 